Welcome to Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. I'm your new host, Chelsea Soblick. As you might recall, our previous episode was the last episode with myself, Jeff Pickering, and Travis Wusso. Jeff and Travis have transitioned out of the ERLC and into new roles in Washington, D.C. I am now serving as the Acting Director of Public Policy for our Washington, D.C. office, and I will continue to bring you conversations covering the policy debates and news shaping our world as we aim to connect our Christian theological motivations to political engagement in Washington. As we build something new in our Washington, D.C. office, I thought today's guest, Yuval Levin, the author of A Time to Build, would be the perfect person to profile this August. Over the past few years with Congress in August recess, we take a break from our usual policy-focused conversations and host interviews with leaders we admire. I wanted to continue this tradition by interviewing Yuval Levin. Yuval is the Director of Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. Under President George W. Bush, he served as a member of the White House's domestic policy staff and was also Executive Director of the President's Council on Bioethics. He is the founding and current editor of National Affairs, and he is also the author of several books on political theory and public policy, most recently, A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream. Today's uh, guest for our August Profiles Capital Conversation is uh, Yaval Levin. Yaval is a dear friend of the ERLC and someone I have personally respected for a very long time. Yaval, welcome to Capital Conversations. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. We were chatting before we hit record. It is downpouring in Washington, D.C., so thankfully we are both somewhere uh, safe and dry. D.C. has had quite the the adventure over the past 24 hours with the Library of Congress uh, car situation, Um, but thankfully that got resolved. But Yaval, thank you for joining. Like I said, I have just respected uh, you and your work, your books. I respect AEI. Um, respect your work there. So I'm excited to kind of dive into more biographical questions today and let our audience get to know you a little bit. So my very first question is, where are you from? Yeah, well, thank you. First of all, I appreciate all that very much and the chance to to chat like this. Um, I, I'm an immigrant to the United States. I was born in Israel, but I moved to the U.S. when I was eight. So I sort of grew up in both places. I was there long enough to have grown up some in Israel and to uh, have Hebrew be my native language. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. But I'm also thankful for having had uh, much of my childhood in the U.S. And so I feel like I've gotten the best of both worlds. That's fantastic. I visited Israel and just absolutely fell in love with it. And the food is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it's an incredible place. It really is. You know, on the one hand, there's this sort of gravity of its history, but it's also just a wonderful modern place, too. And it's an amazing place to be. I, I never miss a chance to go back. And where did you grow up in the U.S.? So my family came to the U.S., uh, as I say, when I was eight, that was in 1985. We lived in Philadelphia for a year and then moved to New Jersey. So I really grew up in New Jersey, but that first difficult year of transition uh, was in Northeast Philadelphia, which is a, a place full of immigrants then and now uh, in a wonderful way. That's fantastic. What is one of your favorite things about where you're from? And that can be Israel or, or <laughs> Philadelphia or Jersey. Well, there's so much. I mean, you know, if we talk about Israel, I mean, as I say, on the one hand, it's a place uh, that's so steeped in history. There's just a kind of gravity there wherever you go. 
But, you know, for me growing up, I mean, the most wonderful thing about growing up where I did is that my entire extended family was in one place. And, uh, you know, I, I was part of a very close knit family. That's part of what made it hard to leave um, and part of what made it hard to come to the U.S. But I would say one of my favorite things about where I ultimately grew up in New Jersey is that it was a welcoming place and a place full of people from all over who understood each other as being part of one big community, one big society. And uh, that's an extraordinary thing about America. It's something that really stands out about us. We're going to get into the topic of immigration a little bit more because you also have a very uh, special connection to your former boss in that regard. But what is a lesson um, from your childhood that formed you into the man that you are today? Well, you know, there's so many we can think of, but I, I would say really that one important lesson has to do with my having immigrated to the U.S., which is just a sense that there is a common humanity beneath deep differences. And in a funny way, I, I came to that view as a child because I was different um, and not just because I had to think about other people who were different. We moved to Philadelphia, as I say, and it, it was an incredibly welcoming place um, in retrospect. And people were willing to look beyond the fact that we had come from a different place. That I mean, I and my siblings spoke no English. My parents spoke wow. very little. You know, it could easily have been just an absolute nightmare. And it wasn't because people were welcoming. People were open. And, you know, I went to a public school uh, in Northeast Philadelphia in that first year. and in retrospect, I'm just stunned by how open the arms were of just about everybody we encountered. And it did teach me something. I mean, I think it taught me to see people's humanity beneath what seem on the surface like they might be obstacles to getting to to getting to think of them as neighbors. And that's an enormously important lesson in life. And, uh, you know, to have learned it in that way, in a sense, it might be the hard way, but it's a way to really learn it all the way down. And, you know, it's something that stays with you. That's so special. And I can't imagine, I was born overseas, but the majority of my life uh, was in the United States. But I can't imagine what that transition was like as a little boy learning a new language, living in a new country. That just... Yeah, you know, my youngest son now is exactly the age that I was when we came. And I, I, I just can't, I just can't imagine, you know, you get so kind of rooted in a place and then suddenly everything's different. As I say, we came from a place with where, where we had a lot of family, and and in the U.S. we had none whatsoever, um, and didn't have language, didn't have a sense of the culture. You know, it was uh, it was quite an experience. But I would say it's one of those things that's harder in theory than in practice. We did it together as a strong family, committed to each other, and you know that's what made it possible. That's what makes it doable for so many immigrants. I love that. So when you were a kid, how did you answer the question, "What do you want to be when you grow up"? Well, it varied, I'm sure, at different times. <laughs> I would say if you'd caught me, uh, say, at the beginning of high school, I would have probably told you that I wanted to be an astronomer or a physicist. Um, that was certainly what I thought as I began to think seriously about being an adult. I was interested in politics by then, um, and I was interested in history and in American life, in American culture. I mean, I really adopted this place as my home all the way. And I don't think that that high schooler would have been shocked at ultimately the direction things have taken. But if you had asked me then, it would have been something more to do uh, with the hard sciences and probably with physics or astronomy. So how did you make the the transition to those sciences to what you, you do now, politics and, and public policy? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a high answer and a low answer, and the low answer <laughs> is that the math is really hard. Um, and ultimately, I wasn't really going to be a physicist. But I would say that I became more and more interested in politics as I got through high school. And, you know, that was in part uh, from an intense interest in history, but it was also just a, a sort of civic sense. It was also things I was exposed to, a lot of reading. A good friend in high school, who's still a good friend now, uh, gave me a book called Statecraft is Soulcraft when I was maybe a junior in high school, um, a book by George Will, the Washington Post columnist, that he had written long before that. He had written it in the early 80s. This was in the mid-90s. But um, that book really changed my life. I mean, I, I, I read it, and it gave me a way to think about what it is to be a serious citizen and to take politics seriously that I just had not quite encountered before. And it opened a whole other world of books like that, of the conservative political tradition and intellectual tradition, a connection there between history and ideas and politics um, in its kind of surface form, which is also interesting and appealing. And by the end of high school, I, I knew that I wanted to go to Washington and that I wanted to somehow be involved in that world. And uh, that's what I ended up doing. Did you study public policy? Yeah, I, I went to college in Washington at American University, and I, stu I studied political science. Um, AU is very much focused on the practical side of things, and so it was really public policy. I worked all four years um, on Capitol Hill, first for my own member of Congress from New Jersey, a wonderful Republican named Bob Franks, who served for many years on the Budget Committee. And, and through him, I ended up working on the Budget Committee and then ultimately working for Newt Gingrich when he was Speaker um, while I was in college and then a little bit after and yeah, my education was really in, in politics and policy. I ultimately ended up being interested in in the underlying kind of philosophical questions as much as in practical uh, politics and policy and, and went to graduate school at the University of Chicago to study that side of things. But uh, the way in was very much day-to-day uh, -day politics and policy. That's fantastic. So you were appointed um, as special assistant to the president uh, for domestic policy under President uh, George W. Bush. How did that role come about? Well, you know, I, I asked myself that question almost every day while I worked <laughs> at the White House. Um, everybody's story is a little bit like this, but it was pretty bizarre. Um, so as I say, I went to college in Washington. I worked on Capitol Hill. I went to graduate school then and did a PhD in political philosophy at the University of Chicago. One of my teachers at Chicago was Leon Cass, who ended up being appointed to run a commission on bioethics for President Bush when he became president. At that time, debates about stem cell research were very prominent, and um, and he had worked on those issues. And because I was a student of his and because I had worked in Washington before, he asked me to come and work for him. And so I worked on the staff of that presidential commission at HHS, ultimately was the staff director and through that work, got to know some people at the White House. And right after the the re-election, so 2004, they had an opening in the domestic policy staff for someone to work on health care uh, and a few other things, veterans issues and some related things, as well as the, the life issues. And uh, they reached out to me and I had a couple of interviews. Um, I assumed that they, you know, that they were being polite, frankly. Um this was in 2004, so I would have been uh, I would have been 27 years old. I, you know, I've always had the good fortune of looking older than I am. It's going to become bad <laughs> fortune very soon in my life, but I don't even think they really knew, uh, you know, other than the people looking at my my CV or something. Um, 
they probably assumed I was older than that. But anyway, I was 27. They offered me the job. I jumped at it. And uh, I worked for President Bush. Um, I was in the Bush administration really the entire time, having worked at HHS before. But I worked at the White House for during the second term. And, you know, the domestic policy staff at the White House then and now is very small. It's a tiny group of people. You get to do a lot of things and see a lot of things. It was an incredible opportunity and a wonderful job and taught me just a huge amount about how government works and how to think about public policy. And it also let me work at the intersection of policy and really political ideas, political thought, which is where I've tried to be ever since. And it exposed me to, to, to President Bush, who I just have the highest regard for. And I, I, you know, I think he took that job in just the serious way that, uh, that, that we ought to hope our presidents do. You know, nobody does everything right in that job, but I was enormously impressed with the way he understood the responsibility he had, and seeing it from the inside only left me more impressed. That's amazing. I I, I echo that. I have deep respect for him as well. So, what are some of your favorite memories, stories, policy wins from your time at the DPC? Well, you know, the, the, if you care about policy and politics, it, the White House is just an amazing place to be. I mean, you're in the middle of everything. It is really a small group of people so that uh, you can be part of a lot of conversations that are beyond the particular narrow policy uh, specialty that you might have. And, you know, one of, among my favorite memories are just learning how the White House works and how government works and getting to see the ways in which decisions are made, the kind of process by which that works. Um, I would say in in specific terms a lot of the a lot of the things that I think back on as my favorite things had to do with the life issues with the abortion debate and with stem cell debate and related questions where president bush w- was a real leader i mean he really believed profoundly and deeply in the dignity of every human person and the job i had allowed me to be at the center of a lot of important work where you know he tried to set down some markers particularly for biotechnology and for the for the ways in which scientific research approached the human person, um, which I thought were just enormously important. And we were able to do it in what I take to be the right way and to insist on applying the, the principles of, of human dignity and equality in areas where they very often are ignored. Um, and so working with the NIH, working with Congress, um, to get a lot of those debates in the right place was enormously fulfilling for me. And to have a president who was willing to just do whatever it took to make sure that happened was uh, was enormously important. You know, there were other issues that I wouldn't describe as wins, but they taught me a lot. Um, I was very involved in the federal response to Hurricane Katrina in, in, uh, in New Orleans, which uh, was not a win, but which you know, which taught me a lot about the limits of government and taught me a lot about the ways in which decisions are made. Um, and then just more broadly, being involved in healthcare policy allowed me to um, come to understand an area of policy that has only become more important ever since and to uh, to meet and get to know a lot of people who, who have become very important in that arena since then. I, I worked a lot with Scott Gottlieb, for example, who later became the FDA commissioner. He and I are about, we're about the same age. We both wondered kind of what, what in the world we were doing in these jobs. And, you know, one of the things that I've learned about Washington in the now 20 years or so that I've been here is that building those kinds of relationships is really at the core of what it takes to succeed and to make a difference. Um, and, you know, I have a kind of cadre of genera- people in my generation who have risen from those junior jobs to more senior places. And 
uh, and are continuing to do that. And, and you know, we, we work together and help each other. And um, in that sense, working in Washington can really be a communal experience that's quite wonderful. I, I'm so glad you shared that because I think it can be so easy for for folks to look at whether it's an administration or Congress or, or whatnot and just throw rocks and cast cast judgment. And it's so helpful to kind of pull back the curtain and show, you know, there are extremely intelligent, bright, committed, dedicated people working on these issues. And something I, I try to do on this podcast and, you know, we've tried to do here over the past couple of years is, is to pull back the curtain. I, I've spent time in Congress and to show that, you know, sometimes policy can get made extremely quickly, but most of the time it takes a very long time. And so I'm, I'm grateful that you that you shared that. I think it's helpful for our listeners. Yeah, you know, it, it's important to see that it's human beings all the way down for good and bad. Um, and w- really one very important lesson I've learned from working in Washington, uh, which has made me less cynical over time rather than more is that everybody believes they're doing the right thing for the country. Now, some people are wrong about that, um, and sometimes they have to be opposed and criticized uh, as strenuously as possible, but they believe they are. And the, the debates we have are not debates people between people who want to help the country and hurt the country. They're debates between people with different understandings of what it would take to make this country better. And it does help to see that, um, so that even when enormous mistakes are made, it's important to understand the way in which the people who made them were trying to do the right thing and did not succeed in doing that. It happens all the time. It happens on all sides. And I I think it's enormously important in approaching politics to see that. That that doesn't mean we should excuse every mistake, and it doesn't mean that we should, uh, you know, uh, approach politics in a purely friendly way. That's not what it is. But I think it does teach us some patience and some understanding. And ultimately, as you say, is a reason to pull back the curtain and think about what's really going on here, what actually is happening, and and how do we understand it, and how can we change it? So to switch gears a little bit, you said you've worked in Washington 20 years, which is quite a long time to live and work in Washington. The kind of average life cycle is two to three years uh, for for someone in Washington. I've been here eight, and that feels like uh, five lifetimes. <laughs> oh my goodness! But um, so I, I think one of the one of the things you know I've thought through and would love to pose this question to you to steal a phrase from Eugene Peterson: "A long obedience in the same direction." How do you structure your life and your you know what are some rhythms you incorporate that help you thrive in this in this city and in this work? Yeah, you know, for me, part of what's been important is that I have tried to work at what is what I think of as the intersection of politics and political thought, that it is both intellectual work and political work. It's not easy to kind of park yourself in that place because there's no obvious career track to follow. But I think that if you can do it by combining government work with with the think tanks where where I've been now for 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 more than a decade or with academic work, that makes it much more possible to sustain a longer path and uh, a more patient trajectory. Otherwise, everything is subject to election cycles, and those really do run in two and four and six year cycles. And, um, you know, at the end of every one, you have to ask yourself, am I still doing this? Do I still want to do I still want to be here? I, I think that what happens at that intersection where 
the philosophies that guide our society, the ideas that underlie the kinds of decisions people make intersect with politics, with just everyday politics. I think that's a place that opens up big, broad questions that can keep you engaged over a much longer term. And for me, that's made it possible to do a mix of public policy work, you know, on healthcare, on budgets, on entitlement reform, with some deeper issues, which tend to be what I what I devote my book writing to, that are really about the condition of American life, the the shape and structure and and health of American society, and the ways in which we can sustain our institutions um, and and rejuvenate our constitutional order. Those are questions that aren't going away. And I've found that by organizing the shorter term work in light of the longer term work, that is always having some larger project that overarches the everyday writing that I now do. Um, and it helps me think about contemporary questions in, in, in a longer arc. Um, that's one way to have a kind of workable pace, a way to think about the work I'm doing, not as just answering the immediate news cycle or not even the election cycle but a longer uh, path toward trying to understand our society and helping people to find ways to improve it. Um, and I think if you ask people who have been able to sustain a longer career in Washington, a lot of them in one way or another um, have found that kind of, uh, of longer arc uh, by which to do it. On that note, your most recent book is entitled A Time to Build, and it is all about institutions. And my colleague Jeff and I uh, interviewed you, uh, I believe last year, late last year, we'll drop a, a link in the show notes about your book. And you said something um, in that interview that I've thought about almost every day, um, which is, you know, politicians grass tops, we are not thinking about the next 20, 40, 60 years. We're thinking about the next, you know, two to five years. And that has really stuck with me in my work. So um, I want, you know, I want to ask you, why did you decide to write this book now? And what message do you hope folks will internalize from that book? Yeah, you know, the book really begins from the the social crisis that Americans are living through now. And so in a sense, I was moved to do it by just genuinely seeking to understand that crisis, the crisis that presents itself as polarization and division, as alienation and loneliness, as a loss of trust and confidence. And, you know, these are a very broad set of symptoms, but they seem to be related. And the question that I uh, put to myself in that book project was, how are they related around what set of questions? It was, in a sense, an extension of a prior book I'd written, the previous book I'd written, which which was called The Fractured Republic, that was about the fragmentation of, uh, of mainstream American life um, over the course of the last several decades. And that book, for me, left open a few questions about the nature of institutions in American life, so that this book, A Time to Build, is really about that. It's about how to understand institutions. What are they? What are they for? And at the core of the answer to that for me is that institutions exist to form people and to shape us, to shape our character, and that without them, we are left formless and we're left without places to go to become better uh, over time. And, you know, ultimately, I think that's a set of questions that reaches into so many different parts of contemporary American life and of the kinds of problems we have now that, you know, that's that's what it takes for me to be able to, over a period of years, kind of get up in the morning and go back to a book project. Um, you know, to write a book, you really have to have a question that moves you and, and drags you out of bed in the morning. 
And, you know, that relates to your previous question too. I mean, that is really how to stay committed and, and, uh, and focused and energized and interested in what can otherwise be, uh, you know, a business where everything is fleeting and where the news cycle passes by you awfully quickly. I would highly commend that book to everyone listening. I have read it twice now, um, and I just gave my copy to my husband for for him to read as well. Um, so you were featured in President George W. Bush's most recent book, um, Out of One, Many Portraits of American Immigrants. Um, it's a collection of 43 portraits painted by President Bush. You talked about your your family's immigration story, um, but can you can you share a little bit uh, more about, um, you know, maybe President Bush's um, decision to include you um, and your story in that book? Yeah, President Bush, uh, you know, in his post-presidency has become something of a painter, um, quite a good one, really. And he especially likes to paint portraits. A couple of years ago, he did a book that was a set of portraits of veterans, of people who'd served in the military. And each one was was an oil painting and then next to it a kind of story, whether it was a conversation between him and that person or something that person wrote themselves. And this past year, he did the same kind of thing with immigrants to America. So uh, a, a set of people, all of whom he knew personally, which I think is how I ended up in that group. And he decided to, you know, to paint each of them and tell their story or have them tell their story. And so I, I had just the incredible privilege, extraordinary experience of sitting with him in in, uh, in Dallas at his office, and uh, he took some photos and and did a few sketches. I didn't really sit for a formal painting like some <laughs> kind of seventeenth century aristocrat or something, but um, you know he takes pictures and and to talk with him a little bit about the project and about why it mattered to him. And you know his goal was really to humanize the immigration debate. It was not to take a side on one question or another, or what levels we should have, or how to guard the border, or anything else, but just to help people see that the people involved are human beings. And so the book is really a collection of human faces, um, each of which makes it impossible for you to abstract away from immigration, and forces you to humanize uh, your understanding of the issue. And there are also just some amazing stories. I mean, mine is a fairly straightforward immigrant story. I mean, my family came to the U.S. mostly for economic reasons, um, also a sense my parents had of the promise of this country and the character of this country. But the book is full of people who escaped just horrendous oppression, um, people who were refugees or people who came truly with nothing and built themselves up to be leaders in our society uh, it's an incredible honor for me to be part of that uh, of that group and to be able to tell my my family's story. My my, you know, my original thought when he asked me this was that he should paint my parents because they really have the immigrant story. I was a kid. Um, he wanted people he knew, but the story I told him was mostly my parents' story, which is, you know, especially now with children of my own, it's just incredible to think back on the on the kinds of sacrifices they made to make it possible for us to to do this. Um, and you know, what happens when you think about immigration in America, for me, at least it points in the direction of gratitude of just a sense of appreciation for what this country is to so many people around the world, uh, myself included. And really my, the work I do now is just a work of gratitude for America. That's what my everyday life is. I love that. That is absolutely fantastic. And the book is beautiful. Um, I would 
recommend that to everyone. We'll drop a lot of links in the show notes for, for folks to buy your book, President Bush's book. In light of what you had just shared about your family story and President Bush's um, desire and work to humanize um, this issue, this past week, the, the world has watched um, a lot of events unfold in Afghanistan and there has been a lot of conversation about um, the issue of refugees. Obviously, in particular, this week, it's been around Afghan refugees. What would you say to our listeners about the um, importance of, you know, compassionate immigration laws? You know, we at the ERLC are very supportive of a robust um, refugee resettlement program. What would you say to our listeners who are, you know, maybe tuning into you know, many different voices on this on this topic this week and trying to make sense of it all. You know, I, th- I think it's just enormously important that our country takes seriously the commitment to have our arms open to the stranger and especially the suffering stranger. I, I would say to think about immigration and to think about refugees are things we ought to be able to do a little bit separately. Immigration policy, broadly speaking, you know, certainly ought to be thought of as a question of how to strengthen our society and how to how to arrange things so that they ultimately are best for our country. The refugee question is about people who are in desperate need. And our answer to that question should be yes. Uh, we are in a place as a society to be able to welcome people who have nowhere to go and who can't stay where they are. And it has always been a great strength of our society to be welcoming to such people, to allow them not only to take refuge here, but to become part of our society, to contribute to it, to help to build it up. It is good for us. It is good for them. But it's it's the right thing. And it, we can see it in, in very powerful images that are coming out of Afghanistan this week. But the fact is, in more hidden ways and less visible ways, it's true in many places around the world the people uh, find themselves in impossible situations because of their religion, because of their ethnicity, because of a breakdown in their in their society. Um, and the United States has always stood as a beacon for such people. They see it that way, and uh, you know it seems to me that we should want to be the kind of society that lives up to the sense that refugees around the world have of who we are. It's not always true that that's who we are. But it should be true, and we should live in such a way as to make it true. And, you know, it seems to me that in a moment like this, we can see it more powerfully than ever. Thank you so much. And I, uh, we, we can only hope and pray that those uh, refugees that are able to, to come are as welcomed as you and your family were. Um, we will uh, leave some, some links in our uh, show notes um, to some, some ways people can help meet some practical needs of Afghan refugees as they're being resettled here. Um, my last question to you is, um, what are you up to these days over at AEI and how can people stay in touch with you? Well, at AEI, I, uh, along with my own scholarly work, which uh, is focused on these large questions we've been talking about, I also run a team there that is focused on what we call social, cultural, and constitutional studies. It's focused really on the preconditions for a healthy political culture in America, the Constitution, and institutions that are that prior to politics from family and community and religion and culture. That's the work we do every day. It's an extraordinary thing to be part of. Um, I'm enormously grateful for it. And to keep up with me or to be in touch with me, the easiest way is to go to AEI.org, the American Enterprise Institute. And you'll find there also lots of other people working on a very broad range of issues in ways that I think are just enormously constructive and impressive. 
Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed Capital Conversations, be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're listening to us on iTunes, would you consider dropping a five-star rating and a review? This will help others find our show. My hope for this podcast is that the conversations here would foster a new way for Christians to engage in the public debates. If you know someone in your church, campus, or community who would enjoy the show, send them a link. I would love to welcome them into these conversations. In addition to iTunes, every episode of Capital Conversations can be found at erlc.com and other podcast places as well. Subscribe, rate, and review. I would appreciate it very much. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. Thank you to our production team, and thank you for listening to us today.